0: Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Hey, hey, we're back at it here again, folks. Things are a little wild right now, but all good. I want to get back on track and on schedule here with the podcast, so here we go. This week, I've got Travis Custer on. Travis is the executive director of the Montezuma Land Conservancy, a Southwest Colorado land trust established in 1998 in the town of Cortez. They're working to explore unique solutions to conservation through an emphasis on community-informed process. They believe that conservation is not just setting aside important lands, but also working to educate the community, address social issues, and connect people to the land that sustains them. As for Travis, he spent most of his life in Colorado, and nature has always been an important part of it. He was formerly a board member of the Mancus Conservation District, and spent time working for the National Resource Conservation Service and the High Desert Conservation District as well. In 2016, he was the recipient of the John Stencil Leadership Award from the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union for Dedication and Leadership in Agriculture. He also serves on the Keep It Colorado board where he helps to drive forward the innovation of the statewide land protection community. Travis and I talked about the amazing landscape of the Four Corners region that he and his team are working to conserve. We covered MLC's efforts to go beyond transactional land conservation, to build a community around the love of land including fostering connections with tribal nations and facilitating youth programs. Finally, I got Travis's thoughts on how to create a land ethic at home and raise kids to love and care for Mother Nature. You can go to montezumaland.org to learn more. And as always, thank you for tuning in. I'm sitting down here virtually with Travis Custer of Montezuma Land Conservancy. Travis, how you doing, man?
1: Doing well, Dylan. How are you?
0: Good, good. I'm glad we were able to connect.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, me too. It's a a pleasure to join you today and look forward to to chatting a bit.
0: Nice. Yeah, likewise. I I haven't been... Well, let's start with where you're at. Montezuma County, the very southwestern county of Colorado, right?
1: Yeah, we're we're right in the four corners. So, if folks are familiar, you know, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado all come together in a uh, nice little cross section there. And our county is is right there in very southwest Colorado.
0: I've been the closest I've been to you is probably Durango. How far is that from you?
1: Uh, Durango is about uh, thirty or forty minutes from from my place. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. I got a pretty good feel for it then. I I love that, like where the high desert kind of meets the mountains, that whole ecosystem is just stunning.
1: Yeah. It's amazing. It's this whole area is a a really special place. You know, you just kind of alluded to it, but it's uh, the Colorado plateau kind of crashes up against the uh, uh, San Juan mountain range. And it's just a a stunning expanse of, uh, you know, tall Colorado peaks that kind of sweeps down into the valley. And then as you head west, just further out into the, you know, kind of iconic red rock desert of the the Western landscape. It's beautiful.
0: World-class uh, elk hunting, world-class trout fishing, right? What else you got? Yeah, it's a, it's
1: an amazing <laughs> landscape. I mean, it's uh, I think a lot of people, um, you know, find this place to be really special in a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, uh, agricultural grounds, you know, beautiful weather, beautiful seasons, uh, hunting, fishing, foraging, uh, lots of outdoor recreation, mountain biking, rivers. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing place full of you know incredible history and culture.
0: I learned about some of that area uh, back in school in an anthropology class. We were looking at Chaco Canyon and some of the uh, indigenous sites around there. Can you tell me about like how long people have been inhabiting that landscape and what they left behind?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is the, you know, this is the lands of the, the Ute, the Navajo, the Hopi and the ancestral Puebloan tribes to name a few, you know, there were other indigenous tribes that also called this place home and passed through and still call this place home. I mean, since time immemorial, um, this has been uh, been their their homelands um, and still is, and Montezuma County is also you know if we're talking kind of post colonization, also one of the oldest uh, counties in Colorado, um, and it was I think it officially became a county in 1889, um, but was settled in the uh, kind of in earnest I guess in the mid 1800s and you know there's there's a long history here also of just kind of the transformation of this landscape to allow for kind of what it's become today um, you know and some really interesting water history and and agricultural history and in the late 1800s there was actually a diversion of the Dolores River to allow for irrigation to um, kind of extend into into Montezuma, what, what is now we call the Montezuma Valley, or most of Montezuma County. And that really fundamentally changed the, the whole um, kind of history of the landscape. But during the um, Puebloan times, there was a huge population here. I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know that it exceeded um, by quite a bit the current population. So it's wild just to think about how long this place has remained um, an important part of, of human history and tradition and culture. And um, it was also one of the, there was a major beer reclamation project here in the late 1900s that built the McPhee Dam, which now um, you know provides irrigation to a lot of this landscape as well as down on down to the um tribal reservation in Toyok, which is in the very corner of our county and so um yeah like i said it you know that that piece of history really fundamentally changed this place and and uh uh, put water across the whole landscape but kind of interesting juxtaposition you know also diverted the dolores river uh, which has caused you know, um, kind of some increasing concerns, environmental concerns and ecological concerns, especially with, with climate change and the drought.
0: Wow. I didn't know that about the the river diversion. So this was pretty much a, I guess, a more arid landscape that was pretty difficult to, to farm and ranch. Yeah. And Yeah. Yeah. It was all
1: dry land prior to that, you know? And so that diversion of, of the Dolores river and in, in, into what is now McPhee reservoir and then a few other local reservoirs and and then a series of canal systems and irrigation ditches, you know, but, um, pretty, pretty extensive, uh, project. Yeah.
0: Where did the Dolores flow before the diversion? Like,
1: well, it's, it, yeah, the river still flows out out of the bottom of the dam and, and continues in its historic channel all the way to the Colorado river. But,
0: um, gotcha.
1: um but it, it was a huge diversion of that water, you know, out of its, watershed into a watershed that um you know it wasn't uh, primarily traveling into and so uh, okay. again you know just providing irrigation to to a huge uh, amount of land that wasn't receiving that water prior
0: yeah that's not an uncommon story uh around the world but and especially in the u.s but i'm always kind of shocked when i hear about a whole landscape that like wasn't there like the entire la basin you know it's just right. like kind of Artificial and this repeats around the country. It's amazing what we've been able to do with water. Um, so, so when people, for lack of a better word, domesticated or um, you know brought water to this landscape to ranch it, what were the primary land uses or the primary uh, ranching and farming activities that were going on?
1: Yeah, it's it's changed over time. Um, in some ways, uh, there used to be a really diverse agriculture here. A um, lot of. Uh, meat production and dairy. And actually for some period of time, it was also a pretty significant fruit production area in Colorado. Um, and, and still there's a resurgence right now of kind of the old cider orchards and a lot of the heirloom fruit that used to, used to be here, or still is here. Oh, cool. um, so there's a bit of a resurgence in, in some of that um, kind of agriculture. Um, nowadays, primarily we see a lot of hay production, alfalfa and grass hay, uh, cow-calf operations, still a lot of ranching in the area. Um, and increasingly in some of the communities, there's there's also kind of a, a growing kind of local food movement, you know, pastured pork and grass-fed beef, as well as, you know, smaller scale vegetable operations and some of these cider orchards that are being replanted. So, um, yeah, it's it remains a pretty diverse area um, for agriculture. Um, Pinot beans and dry land uh, wheat are also, you know, really common here as well.
0: Wow. Okay. And so Montezuma Land Conservancy, how does that, how do you guys fit into all that? And uh, how'd you get your start?
1: Yeah. Our our land trust started in, in uh, 1998, basically by some local folks who were responding to concerns about the Dolores river valley being um developed and and since 1998 the organization's done a little over 90 conservation easements on about 46,000 acres of land so we we our service area is kind of montezuma county just to the north dolores county and just north of that um part of san miguel county as well so we cover a pretty pretty extensive portion of the southwest here and and uh And then kind of in addition to the the traditional conservation easement work over the past five years or so, we've really expanded into uh, some pretty innovative kind of community centered and community informed conservation work. So really looking at how we can further engage youth and adults and and non-landowners and landowners alike in programming that connects people to the natural world, to each other. Uh, to experiences in conservation and really trying to kind of see conservation as the as something that we want um, everyone in our community to kind of have connection to and understanding of.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you is that conservation easement mode of uh, of working is not uncommon and it's something that we've covered on the podcast before. But what you guys are doing. I feel like is kind of extending the, the natural community a little bit to include, you know, other communities, people who maybe haven't really been involved in this kind of conservation historically. And um, it, it really fits with the theme of the land ethic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I really appreciate that perspective, you know, that um, I had a teacher of mine one time who always talked about ethics being kind of what you do when nobody's looking, you know, Yeah, I feel like around conservation, it's, it's easy to compartmentalize, especially in the private lands conservation realm. It's easy to compartmentalize the work into this transactional process, right? Where we're trying to close land deals and and greening the map, you know, adding acres to the map. And I think uh, it falls short of, of, um, kind of the richness that conservation can be and and really what a land trust can be in a community you know I think especially right now when we look around this country and we see a lot of the division that's occurring the land really offers offers us this opportunity to find um, values and 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 shared connection um, in 2020 we started um, a pretty um significant program to try and further connect and build relationships and trust with the U Mountain U tribe. Um, Again, they're just in the Southwest portion of our community is the reservation. And I think, you know, you kind of touched on this a little but there are a lot of underrepresented people across this country and in all of our communities who have not traditionally necessarily been part of the conservation space. And in fact, you know, when we talk about indigenous communities who have been on, you know, in some cases, even the losing side of conservation, you know, there's a long history in the conservation and lands movement that also includes some pretty dark times, you know, and indigenous land loss and the colonization of this country. And so I think that the conservation movement has a real kind of responsibility to reconcile that history and and look for ways in which we can use land as this canvas for bringing people together. And that's been a huge emphasis of of our work is really like relationship building, you know and, and connecting people to each other and to themselves and to the natural world. And I think, you know, kind of trying to redefine what we see conservation as and what we think it can be in a community and I think for a lot of the conservation and lands movements history, um, we've really compartmentalized land and, and people and understanding how we can bring those things back together um, and, and finding ways that people throughout our community, whether they're farmers and ranchers and landowners or indigenous communities or youth or elderly or veterans or whatever that looks like, you know, anyone in our community should be able to have a connection and a relationship building process to the natural world. And I think that that's what's missing in in conservation um, overall. So a lot of our work has been really focused on, on trying to make those connections and build those relationships and weave that into transactional uh, conservation work as well.
0: That's great. Yeah. I, there's a ton of conservation. Well, a few thoughts there in my area up here in the Roaring Fork Valley, there's a ton of, acreage in conservation easements. But in Colorado, you don't have to provide public access through conservation easements. You can, from what I correct me if I'm wrong and I knew this, but most of these are still private lands. They're not uh, members of the community are not able to enjoy or interact with those lands. A lot of people don't even know they're in conservation easements. They just it, you drive past it like another ranch and it's sort of I think it does become more of a transactional relationship than a community relationship like what you're talking about so i'm excited about that kind of work and then the other thing that that you made me think of was um, i recently got to see the director of the national parks system speak here in aspen and uh, he's a native american guy named uh, chuck Sam's, our new director and if you haven't seen him speak travis and and listeners uh, it'll make you feel a lot better about the future of our national parks This guy's got, you know, he's got an awesome perspective as, uh, as an indigenous person and he's got the scientific background as well. And it's just like exactly what we need. I feel like in terms of land management and relationship building. So a little bit of hope there on that front.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think there's a lot of hope. Um, you know, I think some of it's just opening our hearts and minds to, uh, a changing perspective, you know, and a changing paradigm. And in the face of climate change and loss of biodiversity and, um, you know, social issues across this country, it it really is a time to uh, figure out how uh, to bring people back to a place um, of connection. Uh, We were able to hire uh, an amazing, um, Conservationist and community activist, uh, Regina Lopez-White Skunk, who is our cross-cultural programs manager uh, for Montezuma Land Conservancy, former tribal councilwoman to the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, uh, co-chair of the Inter-Tribal Coalition for Bears Ears, and just an amazing force on this planet. And she often talks about this idea of falling together rather than falling apart and really seeing land conservation and the land in general and the stories of how we've connected to land as individuals, which we, you know, most of us have these stories in some fashion or another, as being this kind of thread that we can really look to weaving um, our own personal connections and community connections and seeking kind of healing and and reconciliation of this past and and also present, and, and I think that that's going to be the answer to effectively what is the greatest challenges humans have ever faced, right? You know, climate change and, and the loss of biodiversity on this planet um, is a call to action like we've not ever had. And so I think for conservation to be successful, we need that critical mass of people who are willing to um, kind of come together around this thing that we all understand, this home that we all have connection to in this this place that we all desperately need to, to not only survive but um, but to thrive. you know the land is something that is is inside of all of us and human beings are are connected to the natural world in, in a very intimate way. And so I think once we start to kind of unlock that within people and and, and give folks the opportunity, especially those who may not have had, as much privilege or opportunity to connect with the natural world as others. Um, once we create that space, you know, really amazing things happen. And I think at our organization and in my personal and professional career as a conservationist, that's, that's become the, the heartbeat of the work.
0: Well said, tell me about some of the programs that you're, uh, enacting to make that happen at MLC. Yeah,
1: well, I mentioned our, our work with the tribe and that's just been a, a really deeply meaningful um, process. It's really changed and shifted the perspective of, of our organization over the past couple of years. And and uh, we we very much look forward to kind of the ongoing uh, programs there. Um, one that I can talk about right now that's, that's really just really getting going but is really exciting is a traditional harvest project. So working with the tribe, um, to seek out voluntary uh, access to private lands for cultural harvesting of of plants. And, you know, um, the Ute tribe was a nomadic, still is, well, on the reservation now, but was historically a very nomadic tribe with a a huge land base. Um, And, you know, as land loss occurred, Obviously, that that footprint got smaller and smaller, and and even after the reservation system, there was still many many generations of of relationships between tribal community members and uh, you know farmers and ranchers and so forth. But even over the years, the, a lot of those relationships have been lost as the population has grown and more people have moved in, and so the the land base that the tribe has access to for um, harvesting culturally significant plants has has dwindled and it's caused over harvesting of certain areas on tribal lands and uh, so this project's really looking at both restoration of some of these important ecological communities on on tribal lands and, and management planning for that um, through the tribal biology department but also then this this uh, where where our organization is involved is trying to connect with with local uh, landowners off. reservation um around cultural access to the to their lands um and 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 then hopefully down the road looking at also you know stewardship and management plans for for those properties as well but also again going back to the relationship building thing also a relationship building process to try and recreate um and deepen those relationships within the community and then uh Our organization also was was gifted an 83-acre farm north of of our office, a Little Ways, and and that's primarily, you know, our education center. It's called Fozzie's Farm. And we do a lot of youth programs out there, and and primarily what I think has been the cornerstone of that work has been uh, paid high school internships, um, primarily in partnership with an alternative high school here in Cortez. Um, and so every year we bring a summer program somewhere around 10 youth enter into a summer program they receive a stipend as well as high school credits for that program and they spend about four weeks um, visiting different places in the community farms uh, irrigation districts you know things like that getting involved in uh, um, projects and then doing work on the farm as well and then some of those interns then kind of or some of those students then kind of move on into a farm internship program that we have. And we usually employ about five uh, local high school uh, youth every year during the irrigation season, during the summer season, again, paid internship. Um, and and they spend time on our farm doing land management, and irrigation work, restoration work. Uh, so that's, you know, those are the the primary programs that we've been kind of focusing on. We also do K through 12, uh, field trips out at the farm and adult workshops as well in partnership with conservation districts and Colorado state university and, uh, you know, quite a bit of water related things, especially in, in this time of the drought.
0: Yeah. Lucky kids, man, paid internships. That's a sweet deal.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's not just a sweet deal. I think it's, uh, you know we have a pretty big emphasis on kind of equity within the conservation space here and it's a sweet deal but, and it's also i think a necessary thing you know for a lot of youth they're they they are faced with that decision of needing to make money whether it's for their family or for their own needs and and we don't want that money piece to be a barrier to accessing the opportunity in these programs you know and so Uh, we made a decision very early on in these programs that they were, we were going to commit to them being paid positions. You know, they're out there doing hard work and and they deserve to be compensated for it. And I think at the same time, um, you know, with the high school credit too, it's really a unique opportunity for youth to get involved in something they may not have thought they would normally uh, be interested in. And then what we found is like through that connection to land and conservation and that farm work, all sorts of other amazing things happen, you know, leadership skills and, and job skills and uh, personal confidence. Um, a lot of them really excel, at, you know, in, in other aspects of their life, like school. Um, and so there's there's really amazing things that happen out on the land too, you know, that that's not necessarily re- related to conservation, but is kind of like a, a, a consequence of that experience. And I think Going back to this whole idea of conservation ethics that your show is all about, that's really how it's built. You know, we have these experiences throughout our life that connect us to the land, and we draw from that later in life um, because that connection meant something. And so I think for a lot of these youth, um, you know, my hope is that further down the road in their lives, they'll they'll pull back on that experience with MLC, and and that'll be an important part of, of who they are.
0: Yeah, no doubt you're setting a lot of these kids on a course to go on to work in conservation or agriculture. I mean, I had no doubt about that. I did an unpaid internship one, one summer for the Fort Worth Botanical Gardens. It was brutal. I probably won't do any of those again. But, uh, you know, I think that's an awesome opportunity for those kids, and, and I'm glad to hear you guys are doing programs like that. That's, you know, that I'm sure that takes a ton of work outside of, like you're saying, your transactional work that you guys, you know, uh, built around yeah like these programs have to be just a whole bunch of extra responsibility and effort
1: yeah we you know it does take time but you know we've we've built staff in and grant funding in to do that work and so i think the other thing about this is a lot of this diversification of our organization has has been able to also grow the organization itself and and create more relevancy within the community and again help help our land trust kind of further connect and be seen as as an organization that's really entrenched in the community in a different way than it ever has been um, and I think that that's uh you know that's nonprofits in general should should really be listening to communities and and understanding where they can plug in and have the most impact you know and and I think the mission of conservation and the structure of what a land trust is in general really gives us a unique opportunity to to kind of plug into our community in a lot of different ways.
0: You were recognized by Keep It Colorado for this type of work. Can you tell me a little bit about your involvement with them?
1: Yeah. Um, so I was recently uh, selected as the Land Trust Innovation Hero in Colorado. Uh, they chose nine conservation Heroes across the state, and so it was a huge honor to kind of be recognized for this work um, and a lot of the organizational development that we've done, uh, you know, in the Land Trust. And I also serve uh, on the board of directors for Keep It Colorado, which, if folks aren't familiar, is kind of our state coalition for uh, private lands conservation. So it's 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 a membership-based coalition made up of of Land Trust members, but also kind of uh, open space agencies and other conservation groups around the state, funders um, and other kind of you know stakeholder members in the conservation space. So it's been a it's been a great experience to be part of of not only a local effort but also to be involved in having some impact at the statewide level. Um, we're in the process right now of developing a statewide private lands conservation plan. Um, for Colorado. And, and I think that that's, uh, it's going to be a really unique uh, and innovative plan that's going to help to kind of drive um, private lands conservation in Colorado in, in a really special direction. And And I look forward to that plan, you know, getting finished and wrapped up and, and out to the public. And I think that uh, it, it will set apart a lot of Colorado's work from many other states, just in terms of how we uh, are looking to drive innovation and, and a unique approach to private lands conservation.
0: I look forward to seeing that. Yeah. I, in my day job, I work with um, private landowners and and sometimes I get the pleasure of doing some more conservation based work on their properties, but it's something we're really pushing in our landscape architecture practice to understand, you know how we can guide people to manage water more responsibly. And uh, thinking about wildfire and the, the wildland-urban interface, all these things that I'm sure are going to be included in the document that you're talking about. So I look forward to reading that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier the the drought. I, I do want to get your thoughts on this and sort of the major challenges that Montezuma County, let's say, is facing in the coming in the near future. Is Is the drought the first and foremost issue that you guys are focusing on?
1: Yeah, well, you know, we just last year we finished a huge community outreach um, process and uh, were able to survey over 500 folks in our community and many of them who had not previously kind of been engaged by the land trust and water was one of the, the number one issues I think something like 98% of the surveys identified water as a conservation value and also uh, one of their top concerns. Um, it's the driest that's been in twelve hundred years or something like that right now, um, and many of the land, much of this landscape is in is in you know category four drought. It's it's extreme, um, and I even you know I even challenge folks I think to start thinking in the direction of really this kind of idea of aridification. You know that that the West is really facing what is potentially, what well, what is definitely long, very long-term impact and, and potentially permanent impact. Um, you know, I think when we, when, when we think about drought, we tend to think of these shorter term cycles, you know, um, and really I've, I've been noticing that word "ridification" cropping up a lot more and I think it's a good fit. As um, in
0: becoming arid.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, you know, just, and it, and it kind of implies, uh, a long, a much more longer term or kind of like a permanent change to the climate or to to the landscape. and we're we're definitely seeing huge impacts here. I mean, and not just farming and ranching communities, but you know, forest fires, uh, impacts to the community in terms of water availability. And I think throughout the Colorado River uh, system that's, you know, this is not a unique issue. And so, I, I really think that it's, it's going to be one of the kind of main issues that our current time in history will face, you know. Uh, and I hope that across Colorado and really across the West, we can come together uh, in different ways as communities, as conservation organizations and really whatever way it takes, you know, um, to address, address the problem because I don't think it's getting any better anytime soon. And uh, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunities to, to try and conserve water, uh, look at different technologies. Um, we've been involved in some uh, irrigation research with Colorado State University out at Fozzie's farm too, just looking at holistic management of some of that land, grazing management and different ways of, of applying water um, and trying to understand you know how we can divert less water onto that farm, not only as a demonstration, hopefully, for other people in the community, but just what it means for our conservation organization in owning land and wanting to steward and manage that land in ways that we feel is necessary for for the greater good, you know?
0: yeah, I'm learning about some of that irrigation stuff myself on some projects now, trying to trying to go from flood irrigation to um, spray heads and things that are more uh, water efficient. I think uh, it sounds like you you mentioned holistic management. You probably pay attention to the Kavira Co- Coalition and to Savory Institute and yeah. folks like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, we've worked with uh, HMI a little bit and um, and you know just kind of worked with a couple ranchers on on Fozzie's farm who lease for grazing. Just just around that idea of rotational grazing, focusing on soil health you know, as ways to kind of build up, uh, uh, build up the soil to hold more water, to be more resilient to drought. And we've seen pretty stark improvements over the past, uh, small handful of years, so it's, it's been a good process to just kind of see it for ourselves on the land, but also now with this water project and Colorado State University also have a little bit of data to kind of go along with that.
0: Nice. I didn't ask you, Travis, did you grow up in this area?
1: I was born and, and raised in Colorado I spent um, outside Colorado Springs I spent a little bit of my childhood in North Carolina and, and then came back and I've uh, I've been in the southwest now for about 15 years
0: okay yeah. nice and you're raising a family there as well now right yeah I have a son and
1: and uh, congrats on on your addition to the family as well that's uh fatherhood's been uh, one of the greatest chapters of my life, you know, ongoing chapter of my life. Yeah. So I have a 10 year old boy and, and, uh, I think in a lot of ways, that's been a huge driving factor for me in conservation. You know, it's not just my job and it's not my, just my passion, but it's kind of my obligation to my son, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, I, man, I'm about 10 years behind you, but <laughs> I've noticed that all of this stuff that, um, was already important to me all of a sudden seems more important yeah. in terms of just like, Oh man, we don't have as much time as, <laughs> as I thought. Like, I, I just, I want my son to be able to not only enjoy the same landscapes and, and the things that I've been able to enjoy, but um, to, to really grow up with a better conservation ethic than I have with, you know, to, I want him to be a better hunter than I am. I want him to be a better naturalist I want them to be more in tune with mother nature. And it's like, how do you do that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think back to my experiences as a child with my father and my uncles and other, you know, folks in my life, camp counselors, teachers, whatever it is, you know, and I think that youth adult kind of relationship is super important. And when it comes to the land, I think so much of it, especially these days with current generations and technology and all of that, it's really just about ensuring time spent outdoors, you know, and so much of what I've learned over my life has not necessarily come from books or anything like that, but it's come from being outside, you know, when I think about what conservation is to me, it's like we have this information side of things, you know, all the the expertise we might build as professionals or go to school for whatever that looks like, but then we have this kind of heart side of the work you know we we understand why this is important because we're connected to and we love nature uh, and we have we have that passion to see it healthy just like we would somebody in our family or just like we would you know somebody uh, that we care for that's human and so I think for a lot of youth and, and conservation in general for adults too it's it's about making time for those connections and and that creates curiosity and and it creates a connection to to nature in a way that, that then drives these ethics that we're talking about, you know, um, yeah. I see it in my son all the time. You know, he uh, sometimes he's not super excited to go hiking or, or get up early and go <laughs> hunting with me or be out in the garden or whatever that looks like. But it almost always results in some sort of joy or some sort of meaningful experience, you know, and, and I have no doubt that it will, it will, you know, form the trajectory of his life, already right. has. And he's already a better, uh, more in tune, you know, human when it comes to nature than than I am. And wow. and he's my greatest teacher. And so I just, it's a yeah, it's that relationship and that reciprocation, you know, that I think is so special.
0: My nephew was uh, my my father and mother own a small vineyard in Central Texas, and my little nephew was. Out there with my with uh, his grandpa, my father, and my dad said, uh, "Look, that's a that's a cocoon," and the little five year old said, "Grandpa, that's a chrysalis." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "That's amazing! This little kid is teaching this old man about uh, about nature already." And it's like, <laughs> that's what I want my kid to be like. I want him to be telling me, you know things about nature i want him to be excited about it and learn about it yeah uh you mentioned hunting with your son when did you start that and, and what do you do Are you know, are you squirrel hunting with a 22 or is he like going out with a rifle
1: yeah we uh we do a little hunting and fishing i i uh i wish i hunted more and, and um i get out and elk hunt when i can and small game uh waterfowl hunting and grouse and yeah. So my son's, um, not been on a, a lot of big game hunting yet, but he's, uh, he gets out duck hunting a little bit with me and, and, uh, gets up into the mountains for grouse hunting. We also do a lot of like mushroom, wild mushroom harvesting and plant harvesting, you know, when we're out and about if the season's good. And, uh, yeah, I, all of those things are such a joy to share with him. You know, um, he's real into, into fishing right now. So we've been just getting up to the lake and doing a little bit of trout fishing and it's just, they're really special times and, and kind of sharing again, you know, it's, it's reciprocity, it's relationship and being able to share that with my son in, in terms of food as well, you know, and medicine and whatever, whatever that harvest looks like from the land and and also the reciprocity of being thankful and grateful for that and, and doing what we can to, ensure, you know, whether that's through conservation, um, or whether that's just through good practices in our garden to ensure that, you know, the natural systems that support us are there in the future. And so I think imparting that understanding of gratitude and connection to him, whether it's hunting and fishing or whether it's, you know, uh, mushroom hunting or in the garden has been a really, really, um, important process and fun process.
0: That's cool, man. I, yeah. I've been thinking about this lately, like the importance of having a name for something. I've been listening to um, the book Braiding Sweetgrass, which I'm sure a lot of people have listened to or read, uh, which is about indigenous and scientific ways of knowing, essentially. And I think it's like it's really important to to be able to identify things and have a name for them just all of a sudden creates such a stronger connection. Like, instead of going, that's a grass, going, that's a smooth brome, and I know a little bit about it. There's something about that that makes you stop. Once you, once you learn a little bit about a species, a, a plant, an animal, whatever it is, or a type of rock, you know, you stop and take notice of it, and I think it, it accentuates a level of care and uh, and concern that maybe doesn't exist if you don't have a name for that thing. Yeah, definitely. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, it it makes absolute sense. And I think, you know, again, just that theme of relationship building, right? Like these are, these are not just obscure plants and animals and uh, you know, fungi or whatever. These are individuals um, that we connect with and that we, like you said, through understanding, we build relationships with and, and I think it's that kind of connection to the natural world that then we start to build, you know, love for a place and respect for a place. And when I think about climate change and a lot of the ecological and environmental justice issues that we face in this country, I think that's at the core of it. You know, we we are disconnected from the natural world in such a way that that we are not caring for it in the way that we would if we had a deeper connection and and relationship to the environment and to these individual plants and, and animals and fungi, you know, and so I think it is super important. And I think everyone can engage in that relationship building. You don't have to be a hunter. You don't have to be a farmer. You don't have to be, you know, a professional naturalist or conservationist. You don't have to go to school for it. It can be curiosity in the backyard. It can be you know, bird watching, putting up bird feeders, and seeing seeing different animals in the backyard with youth. It can be walks through alleyways. It can be playing in puddles. And there's so many ways to start to build that relationship to the world around us. And I think especially for parents, um, that can be a really fun, uh, engaging way for for spending time with our kids. Um, but that can also grow into much deeper relationships, you know, like you're talking about. Maybe we learn to identify plants and animals. Maybe we participate in the the harvest of those plants and animals and and the reciprocity that comes from taking something else's life um, and understanding that connection to the natural world or understanding why then it's important that elk need good calving ground or they need habitat protection to thrive yeah. or we're not going to have these things and and we see it all the time across the world there's extinction happening all the time and we're, we're facing uh you know catastrophic loss of biodiversity across the world and, and so i think once we have those relationships built it really becomes this also this call to action right like we have to take care of this or we're going to lose this thing that that is so special to us
0: yeah i think like another way another thing i'm focusing on is tradition um, but I'm kind of devoid of a lot of the traditions that I would like to have in terms of, um, an example is like when people catch a fish or kill an animal, a lot of, a lot of people have throughout history have had traditions of things that they do with the carcass or, you know, they eat the, the eyeballs or they put a piece of grass in the animal's mouth. and. I've tried some of those things and I always feel a little bit disingenuine because it's like, I didn't inherit that tradition. I'm just kind of like trying it out to see if it fits. But I've been thinking about this, like, how do I create my own traditions in my family and for my son that strengthen those connections without being, um, without stealing other people's.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I really appreciate just that comment about, you know, not appropriating traditions that that weren't given to us and i think that's a super important you know um super important thing to, to consider and, and like you said i there i think it's it's about learning you know as white people for myself it's also about trying to understand and experience my own connections to the world or or even maybe at some point trying to better understand my own ancestry and lineage and where that comes from but Like you said, I think that there, it's really just about listening and learning within ourselves and what does that relationship look like? And, uh, you know, I think everybody can, uh, find gratitude for being in nature, um, or if they're hunting, find a way to kind of deepen that connection, um, to the world, you know, and, and hone in on, on what the world around us is teaching us. And I think that that's something that all people can pay more attention to. And, and like all things in life, you really can't have enough space for gratitude, you know, and, and life's precious. And so I think understanding those things, you know, like for myself with hunting, it's like, this is, um, this is an immense process to take another animal's life to sustain my own or, or have that, that kind of cycle within my life. And, uh, it's definitely important, I think, to find gratitude for that, you know, even in just the, the harvesting from a garden or something, you know, it's the same thing. What is, yeah. what a, what a special and important, uh, connection. Um, in so many ways, I think the solutions to the future will be, um, a system that we don't, we don't really yet understand. And that's what makes it so hard, you know? And mm. so that always wanting to revert to other tradition or always wanting to revert to um, something that's not ours, I think comes from that space of of really not understanding the system that we're in, because again, it's a very disconnected, disconnected thing. And we're all part of it. You know, we're all part of a, a capitalist globalized system that is causing a lot of, of, uh, of trauma, I think. And so, I think it's important to, to think about how we can, again, like build relationships that lead to healing and, and understanding and connectivity and, and reciprocation in our communities and with the natural world. Because the, the future, what we need to, I think, survive and thrive on this planet, um, is going to require us to build something together, you know, to build something different. And, uh, and I think about that a lot.
0: Yeah, I. You know, I think it's important to note also that it's not just white people or or European, um, you know, descent people who are disconnected from from their traditions. It's really everyone, including indigenous people, who uh, really we've all kind of lost a connection to nature. That maybe all of us can move forward and find something that works better for everyone. Yeah, again, uh,
1: I, I think that uh, nature's the natural world is one of these things that's really hardwired in human beings and in a special way. And uh, we're not too far away from that to to reconnect, you know. And I see it with, our, with youth programs and I see it in myself and in my son, those moments of connection and what that kind of triggers, you know. Um, and it's like a light bulb coming on or it's like remembering a memory, you know. And I think that uh we can really tap into that connection in a deeper way um and and it's across all aspects of life where do we buy our food from where do we you know get our energy from where do we uh you know are we farmers or ranchers or conservationists or how does our the jobs that we're in you know relate to all of this um what do we do for recreation in our off time how do we you know, connect to the natural world in different ways? How do we connect to our family, to our communities? All of these things, I think, uh, are important right now. And, and, and again, we're not that, as human beings, uh, we're not that far disconnected. And so those moments when we do find uh, connection to the natural world, like I said, to me, it often feels like this thing that I just remember, like, it's just part of who I am. And I see that in a a lot of other people, you know, through programs with the conservancy or or in other aspects of life. So I think it's I think it's important for conservation organizations to really consider deeper community engagement and involvement for that reason. You know, it really is about the long game and the marathon of what are what are we going to do to make this a a a better planet for everyone, you know, and that's not just humans, but, um, for all species on this planet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, in that, in that, uh, light, where can people go to learn more about Montezuma land conservancy, to get involved, to learn more about keep it Colorado, anything else you want them to, to look at?
1: Yeah. I mean, Definitely, especially if you're in Colorado, um, check out Keep It Colorado's website, and there's some great information on there about how to get engaged. Keep an eye out for the the conservation plan, uh, you know, private lands conservation plan coming out. And um, if you're in the Four Corners, you know, I encourage people, as silly as it might sound, like look us up and come give a knock on the office here in Cortez, and. Um, my office is always open. I'm always interested in connecting with people. Um, if folks are interested in connecting, they can email me directly at Travis at dot org. Um, montezumaland.org is also our website. Um, hopefully we'll get a, a, a rebuild happening here pretty soon because some of it's a bit out of date, but yeah, just, we're also on Facebook's Instagram. So folks can connect with us on social media as well. And, like I said, I just I always appreciate the opportunity to to learn from others and connect with others. So I, I encourage folks to reach out um, if they want.
0: Cool, yeah, I like what you're doing down there, Travis. I was glad to talk to you, and I'll put up some links so people can find that stuff with the episode. Yeah, Dylan, thanks
1: so much for for having me, and and appreciate what you're trying to do with the podcast, and and especially thinking you know, more broadly about conservation too. Um, you know, again, I think, I think there's a real need to kind of help tell some of these unique stories that are happening around the country, you know, um, in ways that conservation is, is kind of redefining itself and advancing. So just really appreciate the opportunity to spend with you today and, and look forward to growing a, a relationship and connecting with you more, you know, in the future in some way. And, yeah. and again, congrats on, on your son and, and, uh, uh, I hope fatherhood is, is a uh, rewarding experience as well for you.
0: So far, so good. Three months. Um, you know, it's, it's helping me, the, this podcast is helping me organize my thoughts around a lot of this. And I think that listeners probably pick up on that. Like this guy does not this guy didn't know anything. He's just like thinking through this right now. And that is the case. <laughs> just like <laughs> trying to trying to talk to people and figure out how I really feel about these things. And, and hopefully slowly kind of wade through everything that's out there and get to some kernel of truth. Yeah. Uh, we'll see, but conversations like this are helpful. So awesome. thanks, man. Thank um, you. I'll yeah. follow up with you and, and look forward to seeing your continued success.
1: All right. Thank you so much. Hope everyone has a, uh, all your listeners have a great day and great weekend as well. Absolutely. Take care.
0: You too.